Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. In today's episode, we're taking a bit of a step from medicine to economics. The connection between how wealthy you are and how healthy you are, and indeed the reverse of that between how healthy you are contributing to how wealthy you are, has become even more apparent during COVID. But the quantification of that link, the extent to which any particular health intervention that we might do has a broader economic impact, is actually usually pretty poorly understood. Last year on bmj.com, we published a collection called Health, Wealth and Profits. And I had the chance to pick up that conversation with some economists who wrote for us. They have an idea about how we could, potentially fairly easily, measure some of those economic impacts at the same time as we measure clinical efficacy. But first, I wanted to get some background on this from an economist whose work started before this health wealth link was quite so clear. Yes, uh, Duncan, my name's uh, Dean Jameson. I'm currently a professor um, emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco Medical School. And I have worked uh, as a health economist and an economic theorist for, for my career, but spent a long time at the World Bank initially and mostly working on the economics of education rather than health. And um, there, in my mind, interesting parallels in thinking about the economic returns to investing in education and, and the uh, similar thinking about investing in health. So that sort of standard issue economist from a standard issue economics department. Well, Dean, maybe we can start with that standard economics uh, point of view. Um, it seems uh, from the, the side of medicine that this link between health and the economy is pretty clear and you know there seems to be some evidence for it now world bank is is saying that um but that's not always been the case so could i get you to uh take us through a little bit of a, a history here well i could um i could take you back quite a few years to um some of the initial world bank thinking on the returns to investing in health and uh related on education uh, so, um, for, former U.S. Uh, Treasury Secretary Larry Summers was chief economist of the World Bank in the early 1990s, and I worked for him um, as director of the team preparing what became the World Development Report for 1993, investing in health. So, the, the term investing suggests uh, an assessment of economic returns. and. Um, our discussions at the time about um, how to, if you wish, honestly assess a case for more public sector expenditures on health, and then how to convey that case, um, initially um, turned a lot to the question of whether there were well understood economic consequences of uh, better health. and. Uh, part of the context for that discussion was um, previous work at the World Bank and elsewhere 
on the economics of education, uh, where there is a very broad range of studies of quite different types consistently pointing, controlling for kind of ability and things that you control for as best you can, um, point to uh, not spectacular, but high returns and consistent returns. Uh, in the early 1990s, uh, we were unable to find um, a comparably convincing literature. So in the development of um, EBM, it's kind of become apparent that, you know, it's, it's like the, it's the detail, what individual treatments um, do for, for individuals that, that seems to be uh, missing. That evidence seems to be, to be really usefully um, collected. Is that the same for economics or is it that sort of broad brush thing that you think is more important, you know, the big sort of macroeconomic picture? I'm not sure I'd say it's the most important direction to go, but that it's a, an important direction to go that has been relatively neglected. The our BMJ article, I think, pointed to, to both those. Um, one of the reasons it's an attractive way to go is tacking some economic questioning information onto clinical trials or other intervention studies with within uh, the medical and public health community is it's a relatively cheap thing to do. Um, it's a matter of a few extra questions. Um, and for some, um, for many specific areas, and that's where it will give us a lot of information, um, on dentistry, for example, or on specific diseases. I spent some time uh, a number of years ago working with the people who uh, do um, traditional medicine, complementary and alternative medicine, as they call it. And they were um, very interested in the prospect of adding uh, to actual RCTs that they were doing on specific um, um, both um, herbal formulations and octopecture regimes. So, uh, double blind is uh, is hard with acupuncture, um, and adding on a few questions about days off work um, could provide enormous, in my view, and I, and I think in their view, enormously valuable information to complement whatever other information they might get on clinical outcome measures. So I basically I would agree with Till. Um, we turn to it, I think there's one other area that has been really neglected that we should turn to. It's not less in the, in the realm of new information and more in the realm of more honestly and uh, productively using information that we have. So as Dean said, we have these broad indicators that health and welfare are closely linked. But when it comes down to the specifics, that we're, that's where we still need to have some information. The next bit of this podcast is a discussion with three economists who are working closely with clinical researchers to build in economic measures into, into the research in ways that don't make it fundamentally different. 
uh, and they have a call that this should be done much more. Uh, Sondu, could I get you to introduce yourself, please? Okay. Um, thank you, Duncan. My name is Asandu Oborji. I'm an assistant research professor at Duke Global Health Institute and the director at the center, deputy director at the Center for Policy Impacting Global Health. And Sebastian. Um, I'm Sebastian Vollmer. I'm professor of development economics at the University of Göttingen and director of the Center for Modern Indian Studies at the University. Until. Hi, I'm Sylvain Nikhausen. Um, I'm Alexander von Humboldt, Professor of Global Health at um, Heidelberg University, Germany's oldest university, and I'm leading the Heidelberg Institute of Global Health as the director and faculty. So it seems like from reading uh, your collection, there are still big questions that we need to answer. Um, what are some of those those big questions that remain? Yeah, thank you, Duncan. Um, in a very stylized way, what we found in our work for BMJ is that essentially we have um, strong knowledge on some general aspects that link health to economic outcomes, but we have surprisingly little specific knowledge what um, particular diseases cause as a loss in economic functioning, in educational attainment, in cognitive development, in children, things that we care about deeply as societies, as individuals, as families, we care deeply about the educational attainment and success of our children. And we know surprisingly little what particular diseases, let's say, including COVID-19, cause in terms of those outcomes. Um, some, spe some specific fields where there is a bit more knowledge, um, or HIV, for instance, because that has been a very active research field in the past decade. In global health, you know quite a bit about the um, implications of HIV for employment. Um, we know quite a bit about the causal effect of HIV treatment on regaining employment, but we know very little about most other diseases and most other treatments that we do as physicians um, that we are involved in on a daily basis, uh, basis. What does it buy us in terms of economic returns when we're treating a depression or when we're treating a pneumonia? And those, uh, I think, are very important um, pieces of evidence that are missing for decision makers, for investment decisions in healthcare systems worldwide. And we feel there's real opportunity to improve. So from, from what you're saying there in the conversation um, with Dean before, uh, we have these these broad kind of economic impacts, um, but really when it comes down to to individual kind of interventions, uh, it's that that sort of granular detail that's that's missing. And important also for investment decisions, right? And COVID nineteen has shown us how overstretched health budgets are, even in relatively wealthy countries let alone in the resource poorest countries in this world. Um, so the resource constraints in health have become even more apparent and we need to decide what to invest in, right? And everything else equal, we might have an argument to invest somewhat more into a treatment that not only buys a health benefit, but also has major economic generates, of course, in the end, income and tax returns for further investments into health. So for investment decisions, it is one of the factors that we feel is important to know about. 
Now, you mentioned COVID there, and I suppose you know, that's the background to everything we talk about these days. Um, I'm in the UK, and there seems to be this this grand experiment going on in the link between health and uh, uh, economics. We are having um, different lockdowns in different places, uh, different treatments are happening in, in different places, uh, especially when it comes to things like long COVID, um, different socioeconomic um, backgrounds to the different areas that, that will affect this. Uh, and that's just in the UK. So Sunday, maybe I can turn to you uh, at this point. This is obviously generating a lot of potential data that might be useful to start thinking about some of the questions that we've been talking about. Um, do you know what kind of, do you have a sense of what data has been generated and collected that might actually be, be useful here? Sure, thanks, Duncan. Um, there's a lot of data um, being collected right now for, for COVID. Uh, one way to think about this is to understand how um, epidemics or pandemics like COVID affect individuals. So they could affect individuals directly, which is the direct impact of the um, infection itself. It could affect people um, indirectly through the um effect on uh, reducing health services and access to health services that people have. And it can also infect, um, affect individuals indirectly through the economic impact that it has on society and the families. And in all three areas, there, there is um, concerted effort to collect data. In fact, there, there are a lot of um, um, data collection efforts going on around the world. Um, in this space, um, more so with the direct impact. So understanding, collecting data around prevalence, the severity of the disease, the treatment options. And there are multiple studies that are going on to identify how the manifestation of the disease is varying over time and in different countries and how the treatment uh, modalities that have been um, uh, adopted in different um, parts of the world are turning out and um, turning out for patient outcomes. So that's being collected. There's also an increasing uh, uh, trend to collect some more data because of the um, policy responses to COVID-19 that included lockdowns, curfews and all. So there's an increasing effort in most parts of the world to collect data on how these policies have affected access to healthcare in uh, many low and middle-income countries. There is data about um, how maternal and child health services, um, cancer care, other routine health services, routine surgery um, are being affected because of COVID. Patients are afraid to go to the hospitals. Some hospitals are no longer operating because of COVID. So those data are being collected. And of course, there is a lot of data on how this affects um, families, economies, right? The financial picture of different families. People have lost their jobs. Um, people have gotten stimulus um, um, checks in some cases. Um, people have had to change, um, deal with the shock, um, economic shock of COVID and have had to change their livelihoods and lifestyles because of COVID. And all these are being collected. So um, there is a lot that's being collected. I, I think um, when all is said and done, there will be um, the, the main issues will be what to do with a lot of the data that was collected and how best to use them. 
there's going to be a lot of uh, heterogeneity in in that data, um, <laughs> characterizing things that will make uh, a, a big uh, a lot of work for someone. Um, Till, if we come back to you, there's obviously lots of data that isn't actually really being collected. Um, maybe stuff to do with people's mental health, lots of other bits and pieces that could be massively affected by COVID. Um, is there anything that you particularly wish that we were, were capturing that perhaps we aren't at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. But, um, in a sense, pitches to the medical research community as medics, as population health, population medicine researchers is let's do more outcome assessment in our routine infrastructures for health sciences regarding the economic impact. So if we added on um, variables about the labor market, employment and income, about educational attainment in adolescents and about cognitive development in children and maybe social functioning in elderly adults post-retirement. Um, um, we could, I think, with relatively marginal additional research investments, generate massive scientific insight returns in regards to causal impacts of diseases on economic outcomes and causal impacts of specific treatments on economic outcomes. And building on what Osondo said, COVID-19, um, of course, a terrible pandemic, but a wonderful example to hammer home this point, because at the highest level of abstraction and also how this debate is being waged in many countries, what to do, when to lock down, how far to lock down, is um, on a continuum from perfect lockdown to no lockdown at all, right, on the intervention side, the political debate is deeply about a trade-off between economic activity and economic outcomes and health and health outcomes. And we need the evidence to put this debate on a rational basis. It is on an irrational basis, often for other reasons, but we can support through science to make it more rational. And it is that type of um, um, data that we need. And we think we could add on to clinical RCTs, many more economic outcomes and to clinical cohort studies. And with modern causal inferences methods, even in, in cohort studies, we can um, see causal effects quite strongly given certain conditions and assumptions to be met. When we think about cohort studies, you know, especially those retrospective database ones, um, the question of confounding, not only perhaps in a direction of association, but also um, finding out what might be throwing in there, to, to mess those associations up. Um, in medicine, we think about that a lot. We work um, to try and minimise that. When we add in this sort of domain of the economy on top of that, you know, that must multiply up these potential confounders. Um, so how do we start thinking through some of this? Uh, Sebastian, maybe we could come to you at this point. I, mean, I agree with you that confounding is a huge, uh, huge challenge in this um, area of research. But and luckily, we um, have good, good methods to, to address this. And the, the, the typical way um, of addressing confounding in, in, in medicine, in medical research, are randomized trials. And of course, we can't do a randomized trial with the economy. But um, what we observe now is like a quasi-experiment, like where like policymakers, like national governments, um, make give very different like um, like responses to the pandemic where we observe a lot of variation in treatments in different interventions 
that we uh, can exploit the variation like to identify the causal effect of these different um, of these different uh, different approaches. And the challenge like, with with COVID um, is that um, it will be very difficult, very complicated dis to disentangle various interventions because oftentimes like um, they happen at the same time. A government doesn't um, introduce like one thing, but maybe five at the same time. And um, therefore, it might only be possible like to identify the effect of a package of intervention and not the effect of like a single component of that package. But that's better than nothing, and we'll learn quite a bit from that. And maybe um, if different governments like introduce like different sets of interventions, that will also help us like to disentangle that part um, a bit. And in addition to that, um, I think we um, observe. Uh, a lot of, of treatment um, heterogeneity there because I mean, typically the rules are the same for everyone. Yeah? I mean, we, we usually don't have different rules for different like, socioeconomic groups, but what these rules mean for different people um, is, 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 is massive. Yeah? So, for instance, like social distancing in um, a large house in the countryside or like social distancing in a 400-unit um, apartment building in the city are basically two different interventions. It's the same rule, yeah, but it means something very, very different for these for these people, and that's also very important to to investigate and to to understand what what the implications of that um, of that are. So you mentioned there a sort of natural experiment when you you mentioned some of these sort of spatial and temporal um, variations in in government policy, um, and given we're working in this space really without a lot of evidence. Um, we could have built some of this response um, in such a way as, as to gather that evidence to, 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 to design in um, a study into it. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm, what's hard like, is to generate this evidence like, in real time at the pace like, in which like, the, the policymakers need, need the evidence. Um, because like, um, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, we, we hardly had any, any data. But, but now we, we have more and more data and, um, and it's the time to, to generate this, um, this evidence, yeah? to basically like, use like, quasi-experimental methods like, such as difference in differences met methods to, uh, to exploit this variation over time and, sp and space to, uh, to, to generate that, that, that evidence. But doing this in real time um, to basically adjust like, policies quickly, that, that will be very difficult. You mentioned you know, a couple of methods there. Um, do you have a, I don't know, a whole suite of these um, ready to go for answering different kinds of, of questions? Or you know, is this a, an emerging field where new methodologies uh, still need to be developed? Um, we have um, good methods already. And of course, um, there's always a need for, for new and better, better methods. But for causal identification, we have like a set of, of methods that um, has been used in the economics literature for, for several decades now. And by now is also um, quite established in the medical and public health literature. Quite interestingly, like the medical science like, brought randomized trials to economics and maybe economics brought um, quasi-experimental methods to uh, to the medical uh, literature, so we can learn from each other, which is which is wonderful. 
And I mean, there are instrumental variable regressions, there are regression discontinuity designs, there are difference in differences designs that can help us understand um, causal effects building on observational data without an experiment, exploiting some natural variation, some natural experiment that we observe in, in real life. As, as a scientist, I'm sort of thrilled to see this development um, that the major journals in medicine, including the BMJ and especially the BMJ, have um, been become very enlightened regarding these methods. We were actually able to publish a um, a regression discontinuity and analysis looking at the impact of home-based blood pressure screening on um, blood pressure using a regression discontinuity approach in the BMJ. And I think um, these methods, some people talk about the big five, right? So big five uh, methods for causal inference in data where the exposure isn't randomized by science. Um, that's sort of the definition that one has to think about here. Um, they have arrived, I, I think, firmly in medical science. You mentioned earlier, Till, that it'd be great to, to, to piggyback some of these methodologies uh, on maybe pre-existing cohorts or, or when we do a randomised control trial, um, you know, to add another data collection as well. Do you think any of these would require a sort of of rethinking in the way perhaps we design a cohort study or an RCT in medicine, or is it really just a case of, um, you know, think like adding on a couple of data collection points? Yeah, it's um, and I want to emphasize again how in many cases there could be huge scientific returns from really marginal add-ons. Um, Sometimes um, a slight adjustment in the study design could also really help. But in the simplest form, simply by, indeed, as you say, by adding on more economic outcomes to RCTs, we would gain an ability to see um, the economic impacts of, um, of treatments. And um, in the cohort world, um, the addition of uh, continuously measured economic outcomes will open up um, causal inferences strategies such as regression discontinuity or um, individual fixed effects analyses with some limitations, right? None, no method is perfect, including the RCT. Um, but it is indeed um, at that level, at the clinical level, um, a marginal addition that would give us massive returns. And then let's talk, right? There are many more things that we could do and we could nest within an RCT a regression discontinuity design. We could do prospective discontinuity study, um, groundbreaking approaches on the method side, but the marginal ones that give us big like, scientific returns are also available. That's on the clinical side. On the policy side, I agree with Sebastian, it's uh, more difficult, maybe, but also there is potential um, if policymakers were willing to engage with us on policy experiments, I think we could do much more um, by making some of the natural experiments um, to some degree more scientific without necessarily changing how policy evolves all that much. It would be an, a change um, on the exposure side and it would need political will to do it. The de facto changes from how it's currently done in the end, may not be that large. Uh
talking of some of those practicalities, um, RCTs are notoriously very expensive to do and designed in such a way to try and minimise that expense. Um, when you're trying to persuade your uh, your research colleagues that you maybe want to add on, I don't know, another domain of data capture into that, um, that might end up needing to have some extra research funding or collaboration set up to do the analysis in a different way. Or um, yeah, so what do you think some of the the things that need to to change to actually start cementing into um, studies some of the things that we're calling for here? Practical funding or, or what is it? Yeah, funding, um, it could be quite marginal. I, I actually think so. Um, a few percent of the expenditure um, reserved for this type of research, but a change in mindset in our field, medicine and population health from economics giving us cost effectiveness estimates to um, a mindset where health is a major driver also of our social thriving, our individual thriving, our human development, our economic success. Um, that change in mindset from counting the costs to seeing the impact and the benefits that we can buy through improvement in health for the economy and for our societies. I think that is most needed. Mm. And the FDGs, I suppose, are beginning to do yes. some of that sort of joined up thinking. Um, yeah. But they, you know, and I suppose there's leadership then from the UN, but uh, for all the other, the other places in which this might be useful, do you think it's down to, to health to take the lead or down to economists or do we need many more people um, like you guys who travel both and, and sit between those worlds? Yeah, I think it needs a joint so, effort. And, and, and I think I think the issue of um, who takes the lead has become unnecessarily um, contentious and political. And um, as we lay out in our paper on um, the economic consequences of health, um, once we recognize that there is a link between health and um, economic outcomes, it also shows that there is a role for different players, um, just like Till and Sebastian have talked about. Um, earlier, there there's a role for the health professionals. There's a role for the economists. There's a role for the policymakers, and everyone has a role, including the person on the street who is not involved directly with policy. And I think COVID COVID nineteen is beginning to show us that that we have to work as a team. We need to work across um, disciplines and um, boundaries and that one there's no one size um, fits all solution so the people who are at the decision making table in one jurisdiction may be different from the other but just recognizing that it cannot be solved by one person or one group of people i think it's the first step to um, addressing this having said that i think there is still a very big role for the government to play in organizing and coordinating the efforts across all the stakeholders because in a situation like this where we're dealing with a pandemic um, at the onset very little is known about the disease so a lot of investments need to come in to learn about the disease to learn about the manifestation to learn about the impact and later on as the findings start coming in then um, there will be modifications and translations of this 
learning new knowledge into practice. And this does not happen automatically. Um, the government needs to play a role. And also international bodies also have a role to play. So the WHO, um, the World Bank, the IMF, um, the World Bank is particularly interesting because that's one um, um, institution that, that, that deals with health, deals with um, um, health-related conditions, and also deals with money. Um, unlike the IMF that deals mostly with money and um, WHO primarily health. They have a mixture of all. But then I think it just illustrates that they have very, very big roles to play and um, should not be um, sitting on the sidelines in times like this. So Dean, the last thing I wanted to ask you was how can we get this this done? Who can actually sort of pull the levers of change here? Um, it seems like funders might be a place to start or, I don't know, people like the World Bank or um, you know, the big organisations that, that might actually step up and, and demand this kind of research well, goes on. Uh, my thinking on that is shaped by my perception that... Um, a lot of the investment cases, which put a lot of effort into them. I've been involved in one on malaria eradication, another on tuberculosis, and this more general one on investing in health. Um, they do make these economic arguments that even if they aren't special pleading, can't in any way be viewed as other than special pleading. We have a report on tuberculosis written by a bunch of tuberculosis doctors mostly. Um, you, know, you would hardly be surprised uh, when they conclude that there's a, a nice economic return to that. So um, what would be a way that? And I, th I think it's um, institutionally, I would see it as a responsibility of a place like the World Bank, a responsibility that they simply haven't stepped up to. And that, that would be to take um, the function of government um, beyond the standard macroeconomic functions of setting and enforcing the rules of the game, security contracts, um, relatively free trade and markets. Um, the next level of government decision-making, um, public sector resource allocation, is um, where should public sector money go? Because the pot is limited. Now, you can increase the pot of government money from... 17 to 19 percent by increasing taxes or something like that but that's a limited direction the question are there broad gains and the, the uh, comparative analysis of returns to investment in um, transportation infrastructure power infrastructure um, climate contra climate change improvements in the environment uh, improvements uh, enhancements in the investments in uh, fundamental research. Um, what are the returns to all those? How should the government allocate its money, including the allocation of investment uh, to health? And I think, it's, to me, it's only kind of in that comparative context that you force a degree of, um, of honesty. Or you come, not to say that it's dishonest, it just puts a discipline on the, the um, analytic enterprise. And in the Copenhagen consensus, has done this um, on a shoestring uh, with some substantial degree of um, visibility, 
and I think um, competence. But I think the right places to do that are really in the development banks. And I, it's, it's, it's too democratic in a place like the World Bank. You know, I'm an education guy, you're a health guy, you're a roads guy. Everybody's entitled to their vote. Everybody's entitled to their share of the uh, administrative resources of the institution. You don't want your team squabbling over internal money. Well, I can understand why it ends up like that, but I think it, at the end of the day, it's a little bit irresponsible. You are listening to Dean Jameson, Asando Oboeji, Till Bernighausen, and Sebastian Vollmer. The collection that prompted this discussion is Health, Wealth and Profits, and all of the articles in that collection are freely available on bmj.com. I've put some links in the podcast text. That's it for this episode. We'll be back next week with more from the front line of medicine with our regular COVID discussion. And we'll have more well-being soon. How can you help your colleagues who are returning to work after shielding? So until then, if you've got this far and you haven't subscribed, you really should. We're available on all of the usual podcast platforms. Just search for The BMJ. And if you want to get in touch with us, then have a look at bmj.com slash podcasts to find out how. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.